Welcome to Archery Country Podcast. And hello, how's everyone doing? Don't be alarmed. You're not hearing anything wrong. This is a different voice. This is not our beloved Wade talking right now. This is Troy Spooner. And before we dive into this show, I'm just going to go over a little bit about myself to let you know who I am. So basically, long-time customer, short-time employee. I've been here about a year now. And uh, Jake finally talked me into coming on and helping out out here, and it's been fantastic so far. And we are located right now at our Wade Park location, and to my left... I've got one of the famous names of archery country here, Mr. Brandon. Brandon, say hi. Hey, how you doing? Awesome. Next to him, we got John. John, how you doing? I'm doing really good. Hope everybody else is too. Oh, man, you sound good too. That's great. And we got a special guest with us today. We're going to go over some exciting topic with this guy. Jaron, how are you doing? Better than ever. Awesome. So today on this podcast, we're going to be going over dog tracking wounded deer this is something i'm kind of excited to hear about because i've always thought about doing this like how how i I never knew how to get into it or what steps i needed to take so this is going to be fantastic yeah and this is something relatively new for minnesota right yep just came to be legal in 2019 yeah so yeah three years max so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself i mean how did you get into this yeah i mean Heavy bow hunter myself, pretty much no Brandon for 10 years plus just because I'm a bow hunter. Uh, do a lot of deer, turkey, used to do waterfall, got out of that, have dogs for that. And then uh, 2018, I had a deer where I thought I was going to need a dog prior to it being legal. Just talked to a guy that was doing it out of state during that just to give me some knowledge. And the guy was full of it, Shane. He's part of our Minnesota tracking group as well. And I'm like, man, that guy can find deer flat out because i found my deer in like 80 yards and he never showed up so i'm like if i can benefit myself for finding deer just from being on more tracks i should do it just to better myself as a hunter so that's what kind of got you into the whole thing is you actually got to use a dog see how it's done yeah not use a dog because that was 2018 when i shot that deer but he was tracking in wisconsin and which was legal well prior to that but just the amount of tracks and knowledge he had from deer previously like he pretty much pinpointed where i'd find my deer without even showing up and just wait times, and yeah, I walked right up to it. That's incredible. So that kind of spurred spurred you to get into the dog tracking just off of not so much him as a dog tracker, but just the knowledge he had, you're saying? Right, exactly. Tracking. I'm like, you always hear people, friends, family. I mean, I have a ton of friends that are hunters, so I'm like, well, if I get a dog, you know, they'll be able to help them, and plus it'll benefit right. me in the long run, and then you learn to make, for learn from others' mistakes, like what you should do on a track to help you find more deer and my guild benefit me in the long run and then plus you see where a lot of people shoot big deer so you can kind of see like where they're shooting deer early season <laughs> you know <laughs> coming out of a bedding area or on scrape so it benefits you quite a different way quite a bit of different ways that's pretty interesting i never even thought about the advantage of that of you know week to week you know different tracks throughout the year and you're seeing okay these this guy shot this deer because he's coming out to beans early season or he's hitting acorns in october or something and you probably hone in on that when you're hunting too yeah if your eyes are open you can learn quite a bit of how close like 
oh yeah, this deer is probably bedded right on that point and he's 70 yards from it, had no idea of it, but he's real uptight into this bedding or this guy just shot it first week of season on alfalfa, you know, like hmm. benefits you as a hunter quite a bit. Oh, that's really cool. So was it that moment right there, like after doing that and seeing how some of this is done, is that what got you straight into doing all this and sparked that fire to do it? Yeah, I definitely got the idea. I had like, just like I said, just the knowledge he had. I'm like, I got to try to better myself. And then plus the dog I had, that was a bird dog, which I really got out of that as I grew up into straight deer. I'm like, well, I want my next dog should be a shed dog, as everyone thinks. And then on top of it, well, now she could be a blood tracking dog, which she does both better at tracking deer than she is finding sheds i'll say that <laughs> but uh yeah so then when i was able to get another puppy it was just strictly a deer dog she doesn't know how to fetch hardly anything but she just tracks deer how how do you start or like what's the training process or the requirements to be a blood tracker in minnesota um nothing like licensing so the training or the tracking process though like you start them off as a puppy as you would any sort of training obedience training for me came first and then just started with simple liver drags which and blood you know so liver is really sweet smelling and it's really enticing to a puppy so it just gets the idea of the command track or whatever you want to use to follow that liver track and then as you they develop and get better at that you'll start using blood or hooves and you just keep transitioning from drops every three feet to six feet to transitioning with a hoof and blood. And yeah, you just get to a point where they only use hooves to where, so the blood tracking thing isn't really true. They'll start tracking off the interdigital gland of the hoof more than the blood and the skin particles as they're walking. Hmm. That's interesting. How, like how long, and I'm sure it's different for, you know, every dog, but is there a certain amount of time like that it took your dog to you know, pick up on this? Was it a matter of months or was it a year? Oh, well, she's not even two yet. So February 10th will be when she turns two. So the, her first year, I think she did 18 tracks, but mostly friends and family at that time. So we had easier ones. And yeah. I think we went 13 for 18. And yeah, she was picking up on that at seven, eight months old. Okay. So it picked, she picked up on it really fast. Yep. And obviously some of the tracks I did the first year weren't as hard as some of the ones I did my second year. And I'm sure they'll get harder as you take on more. Mm -hmm. So when, when your buddies knew you had a dog in 2019, was it like, Hey guys, anytime you shoot a deer, even if you tendering it, call me so we can come get her some experience. Or was it still already like, Hey, I didn't make the best shot. We should call Jaren. Uh, you try to take as many easy ones as possible. So opening night, I double lunged one. The dog's coming regardless if I see it fall or not. And you tell as many hunters as you can, like, yeah, if you shoot one, smoke it, see it fall over. I want to take that tracking training um, just because there's so many scents that you can't imitate as a training process. It's what the real thing provides. So the skin particles, the, you know, they say they can smell the breath and all that stuff that they're able to pick up on to where the real thing is way better than training. But there's also way more scent coming off a live deer than what we're putting down as a training track. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, the first year, probably six of the 13 were layups, so it'd be seven true recoveries, I would say. Um, yeah, it made I think it just makes a big difference, just like anything. The more you track and the more you're standing behind your dog, the better you will become as a trainer and a tracking team. Learning to, like, read the dog and everything. I, I relate it to hunting 
pheasants or grouse behind a pointing dog. And the more time you spend behind that dog learning what its body language is, and the more time you're out hunting with it, it's just getting better and better and better. Yeah, it's kind of, I wouldn't say a misconception, but like usually when you're tracking, it's not just like you show up, you put Ada on the track, and she's going to run you right to your deer. It's still a team effort, just like you said, reading a dog's activity level of how excited she is on the track, or you catch that head turn of her diving off the deer trail that you've just been running down. You kind of just put that mental note in your head, like something happened there. She might have missed that 90, you know, like especially when they're young, or she does. She'll blow through a 90 because she likes to work fast, and then... I just couldn't catch that head snap. Like she knew something changed there, but kept going straight because there's more sense going down that train. Well, then usually she'll come back and fix herself. But if she doesn't, I'll go back to where your last known blood was or where you think the last scent line was. And she'll usually make that turn the second time Hmm. to just keep running. Yeah. So if we back up just a little bit here on your dog that you have, how did you decide and what breed you have, but how did you decide that? Yeah. So... First things first, I'd say you pick the dog to fit your lifestyle is what I've heard. I, like I said, had a waterfall dog, Black Lab prior, really liked her, easy to train, more like Black Labs myself, so I picked up another one, and they also say Labradors are very common for tracking, and yeah, so you fit the dog to your lifestyle and then train it to track. They're all capable of doing it. I don't care if it's a hound style, rat terriers, all the above, beagles, they can pull it off. Really? Yep. That's kind of interesting. I didn't know that. That's a lot of different breeds you can get into there. Yeah, huh? I mean... Is, like, a smaller dog going to be better than a larger dog to get into tighter spots, or uh, well, does it really matter? In Minnesota, you're tied to them by a 30-foot leash, so wherever your big dog goes or small dog goes, you're following them with it, so <laughs> there is no tighter spots. Your dog's going to find your deer in a cave. So but for a short-legged guy like me, smaller dog, easier to keep up with. Probably, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I, the, like I said, I know we got bloodhounds, Coon hounds, uh, rat terriers, black labs, golden retrievers, German shepherds, mix and variety all across the board that are tracking just in the Minnesota tracking group this year. So they're all capable. So when you say Minnesota tracking, what, what did you call it? Minnesota tracking dogs. So there's a Facebook group. Then I think there's 27 trackers to start this year that tracked and took calls and stuff off that facebook messages or calls there's a map of where we're all located and that's pretty much the way you got in contact with a tracking dog is through that web page or just word of mouth from others and yeah i think we did 400 plus tracks this year with 170 plus recoveries as a group of pretty dang good so then do you like for yourself did you have to be a part of that group or get licensed through that group or something so no this year, I just messaged David, one of the guys, and said, uh, you know, she tracked last year, and he had to just show a proof of recoveries that, you know, she found X amount of deer and show with photo proof that they're true tracks, not just layups. Um, this next year, we're actually going to do UBT testing, which is United Blood Trackers. That's pretty much what was prior to Minnesota Tracking Dogs, their national kind of website you can find trackers on, and they have different testing levels, UBT1, UBT2, UBT, and 3, I believe. And uh, so this next year to get on the Minnesota tracking map on that web Facebook page, you're going to have to pass UBT1. Otherwise, you're going to be shown as a tracker in training. And what that will do is just kind of allow the hunters what they know is going to show up as a tracking deep. Because you could have a guy that's going to be tracking the very first deer or a guy that's tracked oh, 300. Sure. Yep, yep. So helps the hunters know what is kind of showing up. What did the UBT stand for? United Blood Trackers. United. Okay. Yep. 
So UBT1 testing is three to four ounces of blood aged three to five hours, I want to say, a distance of 500 yards and two 90-degree turns with one bed. Well, so they really that's get... Some, yeah, yeah, that's, that's intense. intense. Yeah. And that's the beginner level one. Oh, wow. So like UBT2 is three to four ounces of blood, eight to 900 yards. Don't quote me on that. And same thing, I think two or three 90s and possibly two beds. And then I think three is where they can do anything they really want. Circles, stars, <laughs> loops, backtracks. You're gonna, they're going to test you. So you're, you're taking this dog and you're running this test with it to like license it? or uh, just to sh- it, It's right? like uh, getting a certifica- certification through United Blood Trackers. Like, yep, this dog is capable of tracking. Um, and the team is. So like, it's not your first time showing up on the track. You've got a verified guy with a dog that's verified showing up to your worst case scenario, basically as a bow hunter. Exactly. Yeah. So that way the person calling you knows what, you know, what your dog's capable of, what you're capable of versus, you know, maybe someone less experienced, right? Getting the dog off the couch and coming to track your deer for something to do on a Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my question would be, let's kind of dive into more of the hunting side of it here. A guy shoots a deer from a tracker's perspective, what, what should be the next steps taken? Let's say two different scenarios. Let's say one, a guy feels extremely confident, close range shot, felt good, lots of blood right away. Second one, guy doesn't really know what he's looking for. Maybe he's a newer hunter, doesn't know if he hit it good or not. What scenarios or what steps would you say are the first things to do after you shoot a deer and you're not sure if you're going to need a tracker or not. Yeah, so time is king. I mean, the deer will be dead in a half hour or two hours, or it'll be dead in a half hour, still dead at two hours as is in a half hour. So giving them that first hour just to kind of let things die down, make sure that it's not laying 30, 40 yards from you and re-bed it up. So when you're crawling down your stand to check your arrow or anything like that, that you're going to bump that deer. Um, because there's a lot of times, especially this year, I've seen it more often than I thought I would, where that deer loops back and will actually stare at the spot that was actually shot. So when you climb out of your stand without realizing it, you already bumped that deer. So it pays to sit there and wait and listen to make sure that that deer isn't circling back on you or watching. After that point, you know, go down, check your arrow, and, you know, you can find different pictures like, oh, yeah, high pink blood, lots of lung, kind of guessing of where you hit you know you can probably get on that tracker right but now if you get into that darker colors and guts at that point you just kind of do your research and realize you're probably gonna end up leaving that deer sit and you could call a tracker and just get their input because they're pretty good at telling you how long you should wait before you track there's a lot of times that you'll get a call and they seen the deer bed up at 100 yards away and they snuck out of there on a gut shot and they'd be like well i want you to come track it today or tomorrow morning and be like that deer's gonna be dead there tomorrow morning you're not going to need me as a tracker and they won't believe you until they walk up there the next day and find their deer so it goes both ways now as a new hunter where you don't have the experience behind you it might be worth calling a tracker right away just to get their input and they can tell you or guide you what the rest or best bet is moving forward how does that work with a guy that calls you and he's trying to describe where he thinks he hit a deer that's got to be an interesting conversation <laughs> yeah uh where they hit a deer i've been told to 
put a dot of where they tell you and put a three foot circle around it. And that's about <laughs> as accurate as it is. Um, the adrenaline that comes from hunters, I mean, your brain will naturally kind of make you think you hit better than you did often. I mean, I can, even me shooting on how many deer have definitely even witnessed it firsthand. Like there's times I thought I smoked a deer, but I did get a single lung, a hit lower than I thought, but I hit it right behind the shoulder. It's going to be dead. And that happens a ton. And there's times where, yeah, they hit way higher than they expected or in the neck. And then they got in back of the head, you know, like it's all over the board, you know, and you take a grain of salt of how accurate the hunter is based off the knowledge of how many deer they've shot. But even at that, some of the best hunters still make mistakes. Well, everybody gets worked up. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so what about, like, weather conditions and stuff when you're doing all this? How much does that play a factor in all of it? Um, It does, but not as much as you think. You know, high, uh, windy days are probably harder than anything. Dry, really dry conditions. But usually in the fall, you're dealing with a lot more moisture, um, which moisture people think rain. Is that going to hurt your dog tracking-wise? No, it actually benefits them. So the way their noses work, the more moisture, the more they're able to smell that scent molecule. So if you get an inch of rain, um, it actually doesn't hurt. The only thing it does hurt is confirmation for me behind the dog seeing that blood trail, if there is one, for me to follow. So like a gut shot deer, a guy shoots at night right before rain. Yeah, the deer isn't going to be dead for them to track before the rain. It's going to be tomorrow morning. So they need a dog because they're not going to have anything to track. So that's when I come in. Ada will take that trail and I'm just running blind following her, which is exactly what I'm supposed to do. But it hurts me because I can't have any confirmation that she's right. But as a team, it doesn't affect her. Hmm. Same thing with light snow. So like with that rain, let's say they decide they let the deer go overnight. It rains. They went looking all day for this thing. There's no blood to find. Um, Like that dog does not need any blood to go off of. Their nose is that strong that they're going to pick something up. Yes, but in the scenario you described with them going and searching all over the place, very tough track to take because they grid searched. If that was a clean track, she would probably, you know, and if with a gut shot, they're usually, usually not always dead under 200 yards, run that pretty quickly. Um, did one this year, guy shot it with a muzzle loader and no blood at hit sight, completely thought he missed just off the deer's reaction. I assumed a gut shot and yeah, we were. 350 yards seven minutes no blood the whole way so yeah she's smelling the inner digital glands and the hooves at that point um or the scent particles from the hide you know i can't exactly tell you for sure but we're assuming it's one of the two sure and i had no blood the whole way so i'm just following her just their body reactions of how she was tracking i knew she was right how does your dog act like when it gets so to say birdie or whatever you want to call it yeah it's not i don't know it's so hard to describe when it's your dog i guess without seeing it um she doesn't like put her nose to the ground like you'd expect like you see the bloodhounds do you know when they're tracking out a human she kind of just walks slower and just looks intrigued or like she's she gets more intense more into what she's doing more focused yep like her tail wag a little bit but she's not getting like birdie type where her tail is going berserk and she's super excited because something's right in front of her now if i go get on a hot track she'll start moving really faster and a hot track is just something like where i just bumped a deer like not the deer i'm searching but it's just a super fresh track and I have to like, we're like, oh, she's really excited, but it's not the one I'm tracking because mine's 20 hours old, you know? So that's where the team comes in because she might want to follow that fresher sign because we just bumped and stressed out a deer, but I got to bring her back and go to the older track and then she'll usually keep going from there. And I'm just curious too, like in the winter time, I mean, obviously you got tracks in the snow and whatnot, but 
it, like, does cold weather affect the nose on a dog? Uh, not so much. I mean, depends more on their cold of their feet. Like, there's dogs that aren't just made to be out in the cold. I know there's a couple of our group that say their dogs don't handle the cold well physically more than the track. And, like, their noses can handle it. I mean, we did one this year, late December, that was zero, six degrees, something like that in snow. Um, really hard crusty. It was actually a really fun track. Uh, I think we went 1.6 miles and deer was still alive when I got there and I backed out and Hunter went another seven and a half before he recovered it. Oh, wow. So the, yeah, what happened there is he shot that night. I tracked 1.6 miles. Ada was step for step. Never really missed a turn or nothing. Crossed two roads and I ended up crossing a river. And then at that point I could hear the get up and start walking, the deer get up and start walking away. And I called her quits because the deer was still alive and I just bumped it. But now that I got him up, the guy had fresh tracks to follow. So he followed it for another seven and a half miles before he got another arrow into it. So just out out of curiosity, what's the shortest one you've ever tracked? What's the longest one you've ever tracked? Oh, uh, shortest. I was done with one in under five seconds, I guess, 10 seconds. I mean, is that that one of the layups that you're talking about or or like a real track one? That was a real track. The guy uh, gut shot it 35 yards, roughly seen it run across a whole alfalfa field and dove into the off the field. I came up walking down a hill and this was in the morning the next day and she started acting weird just walking down that hill already. Um, So when I put her on the track, she started wanting to go right into the swamp, like right down the hill further and uh, I asked the guy I'm like you know what you didn't jump in here nope nope he's sure that I didn't go in there he goes I went across the whole alfalfa field but this is one of those where the gut shot looped all the way back and it was 30 yards from where he shot it but the thermals were pulling all the wind up to her as we were walking in so she never actually tracked it she just went right to the deer <laughs> <laughs> so and then uh, long tracks yeah probably that one this December was my longest track um, done a couple over a mile 1.6 1.3, you know, and usually those ones aren't the ones I'm getting recoveries. You know, them are just running a deer that's not going to die. Um, the recoveries are usually probably under 400 yards, 500 yards, um, unless the hunter bumps it, and then you can get closer to eight, 900. Some guys find them miles. I haven't yet, but. So do you find that sometimes the dog gets confused if he's chasing after that interdigital gland, like you were saying? Like, I mean, there's deer running around all over that area. How does each gland have its own scent and that dog knows which one to follow? Yep, exactly. So each deer has their own physical scent that the dog is able to pick up on. Um, it can get difficult if there's like 20, 30 deer in the field, gunshot goes off and just scatters everywhere. Well, the deer start producing that scent when they're hit, hit or stressed. So when they're all scattering off the field, there's a high stress content. So a lot of them will have that s- smell. And knowing that you're on the right deer or not at that point is tough, but they'll usually die off the ones that aren't hit after about 80 to 100 yards because they'll go run into the brush line, calm down, and then keep going. You know, but where if they're hit, it's obviously a scent line right to the deer, hopefully. Um, so yeah, she can pick up that. So it might take a couple restarts to get her on the right deer in a scenario, but then once you get through that first 120 yards and the deer, the dog is locked onto that deer, it's kind of hard to turn them away. Man, could you imagine having a nose like that? That's crazy. I don't think I don't That's think you would want to have a nose like that walking around know, in stores. Uh, probably not. Because I didn't know that, like when a deer gets scared or nervous, whatever, that it puts off a different scent. And so that's what the dog's actually tracking on for yep. the most part. Yep, exactly. So like 
a lot of times that's all you can tell if the deer's, I mean, as dumb as it sounds, that you can tell that the deer's hit fatally or not is because as their stress level goes down, say that hits a high shoulder or something like that, that first 300 yards, you got blood and you run it right to a bed you get to that bed and all of a sudden she just doesn't want to take a track off of that anymore. Like it's because that deer probably bedded up there for six hours, calmed itself down and just walked away. So like she's not tracking just deer, she's tracking injured deer. So like there's no scent line leaving that bed. So like usually you'll run a line right to that track and you'll be like, I can't leave this spot. You know, like and you kind of have to tell the hunter like she's not done tracking. She's I just don't think your deer's hit fatally. So when you were saying you know you're on this track with that guy and and you got it to a certain point, bumped him, and the the hunter went in after him. Is the hunter that calls you there always with you? I would assume you know going to try to recover their deer, right? Can they carry a weapon while you are tracking, you know, this deer? Yep. So in Minnesota, they can carry a weapon and they, I've, we've been told both ways from the DR, if we're allowed to stay there with our dog to dispatch or kill the animal, if we come up on it, or if we have to remove the animal, um, more often, I mean, we always mostly remove the dog or I've never stayed there if that happens. Um, just cause we're not supposed to turn the track or recovery into a hunt. So it's kind of up to us of when that point takes place where the deer that he shot that day, I was almost certain the deer would have lived. And I believe it would have if he didn't do what he did to catch up to it and just drain it on a single lung hit. If he would have left it, deer probably would have been 100% fine. But he turned it into a hunt and tracked it essentially through snow for seven and a half miles before he got a second opportunity. So, mm. it yeah, if we come up on a wounded deer with a one lung, which they're very minimal odds of finding, um you can dispatch it, but usually we're not going to be on site watching. Yep. So that's when you usually, you and your dog back out then. Yep, exactly. Usually you'll see the deer bedded up. Be like, hey, your deer's under that tree. Um, I'll meet you at the truck, go finish it off, and uh, I'll wait to hear from you. Yep. Well, I think at this point, we're going to take a little short break here, and we're going to hear from John on an archery country tech tip. John, what do you got for us today? So for today, uh, kind of relating to what we're talking about, um, you know, preparation going into hunting season and to make the best shot you can with a broadhead on your arrow, which most guys don't practice with enough, I would say, is to come in midsummer preseason and actually get their bow professionally like paper tuned or even like broadhead tuned um, to ensure that they're getting as good of arrow flight as possible with their broadhead setup so that your practice matches up from your practice tips to your actual broadheads. Um, the more preparation you do on that side of it, probably in the long runs, the ability to make a little better shot or actually have your shot hit as close to where you're aiming as possible would, you know, be beneficial. Very cool. I like that. Getting back into this dog tracking topic now, um, when a hunter, like say the hunter's got the shot, right? He thinks it's bad. Do you suggest they go after that deer, like start looking, or if they know it's a bad shot, are we going to sit back and say, do we need to make the call now, or what would you suggest them doing? So obviously each shot of where they think they hit and what their deer's reaction was leaving that shot, you know, I mean, we'll just drill them with questions, you know, like... Um, how high were you brought at you're using? Where do you think you hit? What was the deer's reaction when it ran away? How far did you see it? 
did it stop? Did it hunch up? You know, just nail them with questions. And you'll, even when you show up, you just keep asking the same questions because you'll start noticing different scenarios like, well, you told me this last time because it's all blurry to them. I mean, even me personally, I did it this year too. Um, and so you try to get a good idea. So if all of a sudden you're like leaving after that questionnaire, you give them like, yeah, I think that deer is going to be liver gut hit. Me personally, I try to treat everything that's a liver gut hit like a gut hit because it can read so similar. And I don't want to go in there and bump that deer at eight hours thinking it's a liver when it's just straight guts. Um, I always err, err on the side of caution as a tracker so that I can try to recover it. So like if it's a liver shot hit, you shot at five o'clock at night. Usually you could go track it at 2 a.m. Well, what's another six hours? Get it into the 14, 16 hours to wait till 9, 10 a.m. to where we're allowed to look at it in the daylight compared to after dark. Um, so each scenario where they hit one out, they tell you like they neck hit one, which they're tough. Um, you can just go in that night, like right after you shot it, because there's nothing that's going to make it die long term. It's either dead or not. So you can track that deer right after they shoot it and have no issues with it. So it's all shot specific of where they're thinking they hit. And then once we show up, we'll kind of analyze what we've seen and like, yeah, I agree. This is probably neck hit. We're going to keep going until we don't find it or, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got, you know, gut matter here. We got to call our quits and come back tomorrow. So there's times where you do come back twice or three times to that same deer track based off what you're seeing. So then the best thing, basically what you're saying is me as a hunter, I know I made a bad shot, liver maybe even further back. I got to decide right then and there, am I going to make the phone call for a dog tracker or am I going to try and do this? That's probably the best scenario, right? Just stop right there and figure out which route you want to go. 100%. So clean track versus a grid search track to your recovery rates. And there's some statistics in front of me will drop dramatically like 50, 60%. If I get a clean track and it's going to be a gut hit, I mean, the likelihood of me finding a gut hit deer is over 90%. One of our guys that broke down his rates uh, in front of me, he's running 93% on gut hit deer that no one else has tracked before him. So, I mean, it's as close to 100% as you can get on a terrible shot, supposedly, on gut hits. Um, but not all the times do I want you to give me that clean track because we're taking other calls, too, to where, if you, like I said earlier, if you've seen that deer bed up and you 100% got out of there scotch-free, I want you to go find that deer in that bed or at least take a hundred yard track, you know, to see what you're seeing. If you think you hit it pretty good, but you're not sure, never seen it fall. Well, I'll probably tell you to go track at least a hundred yards or 150 yards, keeping an idea of where you walked, you know, don't start doing arcs and searching for it. Just be real methodical of where you've walked and then we can come in after you. It's when you start branching out 20, 30, 50, hundred yards where you make it really tough. Hmm. Brandon and John, how many times have you guys ever had an opportunity or a situation where you were like, oh, man, I wish I had a dog right now? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely been a time or two for me where, you know, in the past where, it, and it hasn't always been legal, obviously, but where it would have been nice to, to be able to call Jaren. Mm-hmm. We had one this year um, that was shot and hit back further. And if it would have been a different time of year, I think that there's no way we would have found that deer without a tracker, but because of the amount of snow that we had just gotten, without that snow, there's no way. There's just no way. If it would have been like October, that same shot, same scenario, it would have been, I would have been on the horn already and, mm-hmm. and got to see this dog work. What was the scenario? What did you have going on? Um, it was it was a, a buddy that 
hit a deer it was like december hit it back um got down checked the arrow said that he had seen the deer standing in one place on the edge of this field and then it got dark so he assumed that it walked off into this set aside which it did but it only went about five yards and it bedded down so then when he got down to go look for initial blood and to go check what the blood looked like in that spot where the deer was standing unknowingly bumped the deer didn't hear it because of the snow and it, the wind had picked up quite a bit but we had eight and you know eight inches of snow on the ground and then when i got there to see what had happened we backed out again after seeing what color everything was and we waited like four more hours before we went in and i mean we i don't know how long that deer was actually expired by the time we found it but it was not very long so like from the time when you checked that arrow and you decided oh we're back and back out we're gonna get out of here we're gonna wait four more hours is that when you would suggest a hunter makes a call and say hey do you guys think you need to come out here or uh really they could i mean doesn't cost anything to call um at that you know like getting a second opinion especially a professional opinion we'll put it as um because it helps i mean you, you got a good hunter hopefully only got shoots a couple deer in his life three to five where every day i'm dealing with five to six of those calls on a you know daily basis so, of so basically they can call you for a free estimate yeah of just what could happen like what would you do in this scenario i think i got shot this deer i you know when should i go track it again and this is what i seen well yeah you might not i mean i mean go track it but don't do it until t- noon tomorrow you go i just jumped one 18 hours alive still today uh, sounds pretty similar hit why don't you wait 20 and see if you can find them at that point um and that right there if you would just listen and do the actual wait times I bet you the amount of tracks that I would need to take would just drop dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, if the hunter treated each track correctly, they wouldn't need a tracker very often. So then I'll go ahead, John. So going back to what you just said about the free estimate, what are we talking about for like cost of a tracker? Is it different per every guy? Is it a set rate? Is it, how does that even work? All over the board, but majority of the people that are dealing in Minnesota are tips only. Um, there are a few flat fee guys don't know what their rates are and some people just do it for fun too and if it's close to home and only takes 10 minutes heck you don't need to charge nothing it's just kind of getting the dog working uh but say 95 percent of the guys on our list are just looking for tips yep so like cover my gas and then whatever you feel like on top of that kind of thing yep exactly if you think i worked hard and deserved 40 bucks 50 bucks it i mean anywhere in between i mean what's the best tip you ever got I've gotten some nice ones. Yeah. <laughs> so in my mind, I'm thinking like, okay, if I shot, if I shot a really nice buck and, you know, wasn't sure about the shot and just wanted you to come and we recover a buck, that would be like, let's just say biggest whitetail any of us have ever shot. Right. Yeah. It wouldn't be 40, 50 bucks. I mean, you know, right. I would be pretty freaking excited and I would probably be throwing money around like an idiot. We'd probably <laughs> pick Jaren up, give him a big hug. <laughs> it's happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just it. I don't, everyone would say, oh, what do you want for your money? I'd say I don't pick a rate because uh, dollar value for what's a lot or what it's worth is different to anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, 20 bucks for a guy that just got his first bow and spent $150 on it is a lot. Where the next guy has been doing it, he's six years old, does 150, 300 acres. He might give you a little bit more because he can. Right. So that's there is no set value of what I'm looking for when I show up, and I'd say that's across the board. Each person's a gentleman enough to realize what the cost is for us to drive two hours, half hour, 
all situation specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah if, you, if you shoot a 200 incher that took three days to find, you're probably looking at more than $10. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a, do you have like a percentage? Like, so you've been doing this tracking for a few years now with your dog, like your recovery rate. Yep. Um, so Ada's lifetime, she's running at 42%. She's 22 for 50 or yes, 22 for 51. Um, the national average runs about 40% as well. So she's tracking right yep. with that, but it's so up and down with tracking. I mean, I went on an O and nine streak this year. Um, our recovery rate this year was nine, four, 33. I think it was just around 30%. So it really dropped off. But the more tracks you go on, we'll bump you right back up to that 40% yep. usually. So, yeah, I think we ended the year, you know, if I cut off that 019 streak, I was running 55, 60%. And then would you, would you say, so on that, like you're running 40% roughly? Yep. So the other 60%, like what percentage of those of deer do you think actually died? Or how many of those do you think lived? Uh, I had, so let's just base it off this year's. I had, well, I'll call it nine and a half or 10 recoveries truly nine by ada that guy that found his seven and a half mile later i didn't count that um so nine that she found i had 11 proof of lice which is legitly a picture from a trail camera or a picture of a guy shooting it later so that puts me at 20 i think i had roughly like four or five called off at property lines um out of those i'd like to think you know in my head that three of them probably died that i couldn't go into and then I also have some that I never got a proof of life picture that only had three inches of penetration in the shoulder because I found the arrow at the bed 400 yards later. I can't say the deer lived, but more than right. likely it did. Right. So, so it sounds like that percentage is a little skewed in a way. Like like the dog is finding maj- most, a very high percentage of the deer that are actually going to die. Right. So if we're going to go that way, Ada's tracked 51 deer. We've had one that, she's, that has been found that she didn't find by the hunter later mm-hmm. so if you you know times that you could put that in a scale of 100 she'd miss two percent of deer that died or two percent of right. our tracks then she might leave one that's well, incredible there's also a big asterisk here of if you're at the point of calling a tracker you know that's you're usually talking probably like worst case scenario or there's no blood to follow like with that muzzle loader hit where like if they you know if you wouldn't have gone that deer would they've even gone and looked for it kind of thing you don't know yeah exactly i mean that we're not dealing with your double lungs and heart shots i mean if i took every track that a guy shot i mean i'd hope my percentage is about 98 percent you know guy probably shoots nine deer out of ten that he wounds you know and finds it without help um so we're tracking that 10 percent of really iffy shots you know shoulder shots necks guts hind quarter back of the head like i said nothing that's normal um, so that's why that 40% doesn't seem all that high, but it's worst case scenarios that we're trying to find these deer. Yeah. So like in my mind, you start talking about that and like that, that's impressive. That's an impressive number. So, yeah. So the, in my head, when it comes to that is the average person, when they can't find their deer, Oh, it probably lived 40% of them don't, mm-hmm. you know, that's what we're finding. So they, they, when they tracked it for. 300 yards and there's no blood well i must have just grazed it well that deer just didn't bleed and it's probably laying there somewhere and you just couldn't track it efficiently by person 40 mm-hmm. percent of the time so do you you were talking about uh like property line do you have issues with that you know where you get to a property line and do you is it you making the calls at the hunter making the call to get permission to go on that next property 
are you having success getting on those or so in minnesota we're allowed to go on recreational lands like through the woods as long as it's not legally posted so usually you try to you talk to the tracker not the tracker the hunter prior like try to get as much permission as possible but if you're blowing through property lines that you had permission for all of a sudden you get to a spot that not fenced posted legally in minnesota you can go through it without a firearm and keep going try not to do that but you can now if it's agricultural like farm fields you can't do that or legally posted then you have to get permission um and more often than not you get it you know like as long as they're home it's pretty easy to get i've only had a couple where the hunters like didn't ask for it but oh i have a really bad uh relationship with my neighbor he's not going to give me permission where they don't even ask um i had one guy i couldn't believe it say no to a 17 year old and i'm almost certain that deer's dead in five acres of timber oh really yeah really big deer 160 incher i'd say Hmm. and i don't yeah i don't know if the guy knew was in there and just wanted to go find it himself or what the deal was there but it was kind of iffy so i know this is a new thing for minnesota but how many states is it or maybe you don't know how many but around our region here how many states is it legal in for this dog tracking 43 out of 50 Oh, so it's, yep. it's most so that's the information you can find on United Blood Trackers page, and they will actually give you like the list of trackers per state, et cetera, and which states it's not legal in. Like California is, I think, a gray area you can track in some parts of it. Um, there's like Rhode Island, Massachusetts. I know the majority else of them you can, but they're not all the regulations are the same for each one. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually more a lot more states than I it's way more. And Minnesota was one of the last ones. That I don't know. I know in the last five to ten years, it's gotten way more popular. Um, and I'd say even in the last five years, that Iowa just switched over in 2020. I think I don't know how long Wisconsin's been doing it. Obviously, Minnesota in 2019. Um, I think it was a bigger thing, like across seas, like Europe used to do a lot of dog tracking. I mm-hmm. think that's where it kind of generated from and came to the United States from that. So I'm just kind of curious, like, do you have, like, some wild story, some crazy track job you had, something that just stands out over the rest? Well, they're all crazy in their own sense of value. Um, Crazy in which way is really the question. I mean, crazy finding I found a 15-year-old's 187-inch typical. That's pretty crazy. Uh, That was nuts walking up. He thought it was, like, 140-inch, and then he stumbled upon a 187. Kind of takes your breath away. No ground shrinkage (laughs) on that one. Oh, man. Why can't that happen to me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, I done a track for myself personally where we went, like, a half mile, and that was just this year. Well, total track, 1.2 miles, but I went the first .7 without a dog. Um, And then we came up on that one still alive, and... Aiden went down to lick its nose, and the deer stood up and started bull rushing us. Oh, wow. 200-pound deer staring at you like it's going to kill you. I mean, it's pretty freaky. That gets the heart going a little bit then right there. Yep, exactly. I I ran, for what, sure. What did, <laughs> what did the dog do? Uh, she ran as well. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, she went up and started licking its nose. The deer stood up, and, I mean, just angry eyes. Um, came. She ran behind me. Ada came and ran behind me, almost squealing. And the deer started blowing snot and actually snort wheezed at me about seven yards away. And I was like, I'm going to get bull rushed here. And I'm stuck down in a ditch. And uh, it decided to take flight over fight because I was screwed if he took fight. Did you you have to go change your shorts then? Yeah, I wiped twice. (laughs) (laughs) So at a moment like that then, 
Because you said before you can't carry a gun when you're doing this, right? No weapon? You can carry a gun, but the dog can't be present when you kill it. So how far away does that dog have to be when you got that deer standing there ready to run you down? Uh, yeah, so that's where it's a gray area. Like More often than not, you remove them from the site entirely where they're not sitting there 10 yards away. You get them out of sight. Um, back of the truck if you can or you know over the hill. So yeah, then that scenario I went up. I got out of there, got her up and tied her up over the top of the hill and then came back with my bow into that drainage and finished the deal. Rodeo. That's, yeah, that's crazy. It, was, it was nuts. <laughs> it's not too often from a hunter's perspective that you end up looking at the deer saying like, no, he's going to win this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, there was no question. I was outmanned there. And it's crazy. And we talked about it. So in that week, um, that would have been October 28th, when that happened to me, I think there's three or four other trackers that had their dogs and themselves charged that week. They're just so built up on testosterone and mm. they're ready to pick fight over flight. Um, so when you come up on a live deer, which seems like you happen more often than you want to, uh, you gotta be wor- worried because they will charge you. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned this year how dangerous antlers can be, which I, I had never known that before. Um, loading one into the back of the truck, I'd, a buddy take a tine to the face and like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want that on a on a two hundred pound angry deer. I mean, that's that's some damage, man. Yeah, it's one of our guys this year had their uh, dog picked up in its horns and pushed up against a poplar tree. Oh Over. my goodness! Yep. Did it, anything happen to the dog? I think it had two gouges and had. I don't know if it got stitches or not, but definitely got pulled from the area. wasn't ready to keep going for more. That would make <laughs> me a little gun shy too. Mm-hmm. Oh man. So how can people, like, is Facebook the only way we can get a hold of you when we want to contact you? Is there anything else? So right now, Facebook for Minnesota is the best option, going to the Minnesota Tracking Dog Group. Otherwise, there's United Blood Trackers. Two of them are all going to be UBT certified guys on there. Um, Between those two options are where you're going to find a tracker if you're completely new to it. Now, with it becoming more popular, um, your network of guys that know of you, is a lot bigger. I mean, just in two years, I don't know how many random calls I got from people like, oh, I heard from a guy from another guy that you tracked here. Yes, I do. You sure. know, so it's grown and with popularity very easier quickly now. Um, but if you're new to it and don't know of anyone that has one, yeah, those Facebook tracking dog page or UBT would be your best bet. How is that Facebook page laid out? Like, is there a section on there they can click? And it's just a list of names or? Yep. So there's a Minnesota map which shows all the counties and it'll represent a number. So I don't know. I think I'm number seven. And then you can relate to that number to a tracker on a list. So number seven, Jaron Cheetah, dog's name, Ada, phone number and location of where he's from. And you call him. And usually what we try to do is not have you call like all 27 trackers trying to get one to show up. You try to delegate it. So like if I get a call from a guy, but I can't get there. I kind of know where the other trackers are at that time or the next nearest ones. would be like, well, let me talk to Andy. He's the next closer, Trenton. Um, there's four of us in our area. Mark's another one. Uh, so we work together alongside like, yeah, these three are busy, but Trenton's open. So why don't you call him? Here's his number. So is there any like unwritten law? You don't cross someone else's path. Like if uh, you're an hour north of me here and Tom, as he's kind of up in that area, you want to contact him or do you travel Will you go anywhere? Yeah, so you start off trying to get the closest guy. Um, sometimes they don't answer, and then it's you know, not, you want to say it's a first-come, first-serve. You try to let them take it first because, one, you don't want to drive two hours to it, but you also got to give the hunter what he wants. You know, if he wants a tracker tonight and the other guy's not answering, you just go to kind of take it. But as if 
if a guy wants to come track in my backyard for my neighbor, I'm probably sleeping anyways, more power to him. You know, like, I ain't going to get mad if anyone's tracking outside my door um, because I'm not taking it. So. Right. What's the latest phone call you have ever received uh, time-wise? Like, you got woken up at midnight or 2 a.m. by guys calling looking for trackers, or how does that? Yeah, I was going to say, what's the late at that point? I mean, yeah. I, got, I got guys that track till 6 a.m., and then they call me in the morning thinking that they're going, I'm 2, 3, 4, 12, all the above. All the above. Phone just rings. Yeah. Oh, it, man. It's a blast. <laughs> One thing I was that I thought would be interesting if you've been tracking this, and maybe you haven't, but we get a lot of questions on broadheads here. So, like, your recoveries... Um, you know, let's say gut shots, just for instance, that sounds like one, you talked about that a lot. Is there a better, you know, fixed blade versus mechanical as far as recoveries, or aren't you seeing really any correlation to the broadheads themselves? Yeah, I, I knew we were going to end up going down this rabbit hole with <laughs> the whole broadhead talk being at an archery shop. Um, I'll say that up until this year, I shot mechanicals my entire life. Loved every bit of them, never had any issues, started tracking more. And next year, I'm switching to fixed. Do mechanicals kill deer? Yes. The biggest difference is your penetration. Um, and so one of our guys has a great algorithm that breaks it down. 75% uh, of the deer that he shoot, or recovers have a full pass-through. So that's a huge number. So like that's based off that 40%. Third, you know, if we're going to go into 100, so 40, per, 40 out of 100 that he, that he finds, 30 of them have a full pass-through. Now, the difference in a mechanical pass-through likelihood is 42%. So 42 out of 100 deer get shot with a fit or mechanical. 42 of the arrows get pass-throughs. Now, you go to a fix, that number's 58%. So it's gained 20 or 16% more out of that three-quarters of the deer are getting found. So it's a really big number. And it's the deflections and all that stuff. The weird stuff that happens with mechanicals doesn't seem to happen as much with fixed. But mechanicals kill deer, too. Right. Yeah, and I've always been a mechanical guy myself um, and probably will still continue to be. But part of that for me is what's going to make me make the best shot. You know, I'm worked up. I'm in the tree stand. Maybe I'm at an awkward angle, and I may be torquing my bow. Maybe I'm not in proper form. And the less, you know, or the more you're torquing, the less likely that mechanical is going to get thrown off. You know, this is in my mind, right? Yep. So it's going to be a more accurate flight, which in turn will help me make a better shot versus a fixed blade. If I'm torquing my bow, maybe my bow is a little out of tune, whatever, that shot might be off a little more. So I get what you're saying there, and I'm not arguing with you, right? But, no, I agree but 100%. That in, my, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, shot placement's key, right? So what's going to help me make the best shot? And that generally is going to be the mechanical. Not all the time, but... You and know. no, you're, there's so many different ways you can look at the numbers of which one's better. Um, if you believe you have a good form and you shoot high poundage, by all means, you know, you can shoot really either mechanical or fixed. But now you get into lesser poundage, like if, for a single lung hit where them guys try to blow through a shoulder, which I just, I mean, it does happen 100%. But the tracks that we get called on on shoulder hits are very hard to find because it's a one lunger. Because if it got both lungs, we're usually not going to be called. So the, all the shoulder hits that we see are always usually bad. I'm on here. The guy says 11% chance recovery rate if he shows up for a one lung. Yep. You know, but that's not counting all the ones that got the penetration double lunged. Right. But so yeah, if you're gonna deal with that tight shoulder, getting that double lung is huge. Getting the extra penetration is huge, and that's where the numbers could 
change. But yeah, mechanicals. Yeah, I guess it, it's, it's a whole. It's, it's, it's a, whole it's a rabbit, rabbit hole. Yeah, it, it really is. is. We, we mean, could we could debate this till the sun comes out. I was going to say. I feel yeah. like if we were doing this live right now and taking callers, <laughs> could you imagine what the phones would be doing right now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'd be up till that three four a.m. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be ready to go track a deer. Yep. Well, awesome. I don't want to keep you too much longer. I'm sure you're busy tonight. But uh, is there anything else you guys want to add here before we wrap things up? The only thing I. Oh, sorry. The only thing I wanted to ask is, like, so now that you've been tracking for a few years, is there, like, what would be the one, you know, main thing you've learned or the biggest takeaway, you know, on this whole tracking experience over the last few years with trailing, you know, iffy shot deer, you know, not the best shots, right? Yep. Time is king. Um, No matter what your schedule is or what you got going on or storm coming in, coyotes, you don't know, leaving the deer to die is actually going to find you your deer more often than not. So, you hear it all the time. Well, I have to work in the morning. Well, that doesn't make your deer die at eight o'clock tonight. It's still probably going to die at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. So you can't go in and track it right now because otherwise there's a very likelihood you're not going to find it. Um, that would be the biggest. And then the next thing is grid searching. So like, if we want you to go out and find your deer without having to call us, but be careful about it. If you think you had a bad shot, or if you get to that 150 yards and you start having that doubt in your head, like maybe it didn't hit where I thought, like which point should I call the tracker? I'd say if you get to that 150 yards and you're struggling to find blood, it's probably time to get a tracker on the phone because you're doing more harm than good at that point. Yeah, those two things probably mean the most in recovering your deer, time being most important. Mm -hmm. I guess my last question would be, so after getting to meet with you and getting to talk with you, if I just start calling you for every deer I shoot whether it goes down in front of me or not, just to be safe. Or is that going to annoy the hell out of you? Or <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, it seems like that's what it takes place already. I mean, once the guys get an acquaintance and they hopefully like you, you probably get three, four calls from that family or that guy personally that year. And that's great now. That's why I get so many calls. But at least you're still finding your deer and careful about it. And sooner or later, you're going to start learning yourself. Like, okay, I know how to handle this one because I've, talk to jaron or another tracker five six times like i know what he's already going to tell me i just have to follow what he's going to tell me for instance we're going to back out back up to my deer um that i shot this year i seen the deer i hit low took out one leg i seen the deer falling and making noises as it was falling by the time it got out of sight i already made myself think that i heard it dying with the noises of it falling like its head was hitting the ground after i just watched it fall and stumble the whole way across my field of view and then it laid there and just started stumbling that's what happens to the average hunter every single time and i've seen 50 tracks and i did to myself too Mm, like you try to give yourself best case scenario as soon as you can't see it yep so my final thought question however you want to take it um again after tracking a few deer or many deer more you track more deer this year than what the average guy probably does in 50 years so let's say a lifetime of bow hunting right yep maybe one you know guy shoots one deer a year let's say for 50 years you did that in one year after the experiences and tracking that you've done shot placement broadside deer you know obviously deer at different angles this is gonna vary quite a bit but let's say just perfectly broadside deer shot placement explanation go I'm staying off that shoulder 
first things first. I don't care if you're shooting the heaviest arrow in a two blade, single bevel, 800 grains. I don't know the details on it, but I'm just staying off that shoulder because you're just asking for the two out of 10 or something that doesn't get the penetration. Um, if you hit four inches behind that shoulder, you still get lungs. If you go back two or three inches, you're getting into the love liver gut, which are still hundred percent lethal shots and you should be able to recover them if treated properly. But then staying off that shoulder allows you to have air towards that shoulder, which people don't understand. Like if you go straight up the leg and try to hit that triangle, you're not giving yourself any air forward. You're just hitting shoulder at that point to where give yourself that four or five inches behind the shoulder, allow yourself to have four inches to the left if the deer's facing left and four inches to the right to still be in the kill zone. Mm -hmm. And yeah, get it through the cavity and then you should be able to get it. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. I want to thank you for coming out. This has been pretty cool. I, I'm glad we got to talk about this. Yeah, it's a cool yeah. topic. Yeah. Nope, no problem. So hope everyone enjoyed this episode, and uh, we'll see you real soon. Thank you for listening to Archery Country Podcast. <laughs>